0: A great American president, Abraham Lincoln, said that his country was the last best hope of Earth, a nation with a special mission to save mankind. I'm Professor Adam Smith, director of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford, and on this podcast I'll be exploring how this powerful idea shapes America. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. On the 22nd of November 1963, 60 years ago, President John F. Kennedy was shot in Dallas, Texas. Everyone remembers where they were when they heard the news. The historian Richard Hofstadter, who we discussed in a previous episode, was in Cambridge, England that night, dining with a friend, the day after he'd given his lecture in Oxford on the paranoid style in American politics. Shell-shocked, he listened to the coverage. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy
1: died at 1pm Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, Presumably he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States.
0: We've all seen those images, the stills from the Zapruder film, the President's head jerking as the bullet hit, Jackie in her pink coat crawling across the back of the limo. Thousands of books, documentaries, podcasts, TV shows and Hollywood movies have been dedicated to the events of the 22nd of November 1963 and the shockwaves it sent around the world. No other event has spawned as many conspiracy theories from the mainstream CIA or Cuban involvement to the bizarre, a UFO cover up, for example. So how and why did this shocking event become the mother of all conspiracy theories? And what does it tell us about America? Joining me now to discuss these questions are Phil Tinline and Steve Gillen. Phil, over the course of 20 years working for BBC Radio, has made and presented many acclaimed documentaries about how political history shapes our lives. And uh, full disclosure, I presented some of them. He's the author of The Death of Consensus, about the shifting currents of 20th century British politics, and he's now working on a book about conspiratorial thinking in the post-war United States. And Steve Gillen, formerly of the University of Oklahoma and indeed of the University of Oxford, scholar in residence at the History Channel and the author or editor of many books on post-war US political history, including The Kennedy Assassination 24 Hours After, which was also a brilliant podcast made by the History Channel. Phil, let's start this by going back to the morning of the 22nd of November 1963. We know Later, that Kennedy became for many people this idealized, sainted figure that nine out of ten Americans in 1964 claimed that they'd voted for him in 1960. But how did it look on the morning of his assassination? Who loved him and who hated him, and why?
1: Well, I mean, I do think that the the Kennedy sort of myth was uh, doing pretty well already. Obviously, it's massively turbocharged by that afternoon but you know the Kennedy operation was a very good one in terms of its its image construction I mean famously so I mean if you want your president not to be a sort of slightly dreary old ex-general who can't quite get a sentence out very clearly but you want kind of a film star He's already your guy, but there are plenty of people, some of whom, as you say, probably turned in a more uh, sort of reverent direction later, who are very critical of him. There are plenty of people critical of him on the left. I mean, I talked to somebody recently doing research who was kind of a peace activist. He said, we never saw Kennedy as a progressive. You know, he was a lot of people wouldn't have seen him as, even as a liberal. You know, he was a what we would probably now call a centrist. He was a pretty, you know, hard-faced, cold warrior. Uh, for you know, much of his presidency, he'd begun to change, but you know, he was still pretty uh, ambivalent. And then, of course, famously, the people who really loathed him, and not only loathed him in some sort of petty, cartoonish way, but specifically in terms of political fear, saw him as the person who was ushering in imminent tyranny, whether it was through the UN or through, you know, giving black people rights or however they specifically couched it.
0: Just flesh that out a bit more, because I think a lot of listeners are going to be really surprised by this notion of Kennedy as a incipient tyrant. I mean, after all, you just said that he seems like a, this unobjectionable centrist figure. People on the left are incredibly frustrated with him, his slow progress on civil rights. So where does this idea of him as a tyrant come from? Well, I think there is a pre-existing fear that is
1: there, you know, probably right through American history, certainly Intermittently, right from the the, the the talk in the Declaration of Independence, you know, which we've talked about before, about the sort of the threat of you know despotism being imposed on the colonists by George III, as you know, as some people have argued, you know, if he actually wanted to impose absolute despotism, he probably could have done. Um, but that fear, allied to the sense of you know a very strong sense of freedom uh, as a kind of primary value, means that there is a a, a very ready. Drama, a very ready movie about to run in people's heads, which has been uh, exacerbated and built up, particularly. After the First World War, and in fact, actually, after the Civil War, I mean, that's, you know, what does does Wilkes Booth shout at Lincoln? You know, Mm -hmm. that's always the tyrants. Um, You know, after the Civil War and the changes of the 18th Amendment and so on, then after the First World War, when America goes back into Europe and the state gets bigger, and then particularly after the Second World War, you have this enormous state. And I think the fact that he's a centrist actually is enormously objectionable to some people, particularly in the sense of the sort of, not just the centre of the spectrum, but sort of centre of power. After 1945, when America becomes it's meant to be a republic of small farmers, when America becomes the most powerful leviathan the world has ever seen, that is deeply discombobulating for people at a certain point on the left and a certain point on the right. It's very hard to come to terms with. So it's not a huge leap to see to go from that to the idea of you know one world government, the United Nations, and and uh, you know incipient tyranny. You've also, of course, had a decade of worrying about communism, uh, which is exactly the same basic fear. Steve.
2: So on that morning, on November 22nd, 1963, Kennedy was in Dallas for a reason. He was in Dallas because the previous June he had thrown his support behind what would become the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And in doing so, his popularity in the South dropped dramatically. And he knew he had to win uh, Texas in order to win reelection in 1964. So that's the reason why he is there. He's also unpopular with a lot of conservatives because of... They felt that he was uh, too soft in developing a negotiated settlement in Laos because of the Bay of Pigs. And that summer, he talked about uh, a, a nuclear limited test ban treaty, and there was a perception that he was going soft. So Kennedy was losing uh, the right wing of his party, and especially the South. So he was in a difficult political position on November twenty second, 1963.
0: One of the ways that we sometimes think about the Kennedy assassination is as the end of innocence, Uh, that everything up until the 22nd of November, uh, that America was a peaceful and consensual place and that afterwards the gates were opened and polarisation and anger and violence built onto the streets and we've never recovered from it since. That, of course, is, to put it mildly, an oversimplification of the significance of the assassination. But there he is riding through a city uh, where there were a lot of right-wing activists, a city that didn't vote for him, and he's riding in an open-topped limousine. What was his security detail thinking? I mean, was it even possibly in their minds that he was going to be assassinated? Or, in fact, does that indicate that this was the unthinkable?
2: You know, the Secret Service wanted Kennedy, when he landed in Love Field, to go directly to the trademark. And Kennedy insisted on this motorcade that really goes out of its way uh, to go through downtown. Secondly, if he went through downtown, they wanted him to have the bubble top on, which wasn't bulletproof, but provides some level of protection. But Kennedy, you know, this is the first trip that Jackie Kennedy political trip that she had been on since the, uh, the election of 1960. And it was just a few months after they lost their son, Patrick. And Kennedy knew people disliked him, but he knew they loved his wife. He wanted people to see her. So he insisted on not allowing Secret Service agents on the running boards. He wanted them to keep their distance. He wanted people to be able to see Jackie. And there, so there was a lot of concern among Secret Service agents. I spent time with Clint Hill, who, uh, as you know, was the agent who, uh, after the fatal bullets are shot, jumps on the back of the limousine and pushes Jackie back into the car. And they were prepared for some right-wing extremist event, although they didn't know what it was going to be. And they thought it would happen when they were downtown with all the tall buildings and the open windows where they really couldn't protect Kennedy. And they never anticipated that it would come from a left-wing Marxist and that it would take place in this open space of Dilly
1: Plaza. I mean, he probably jokingly uh, said to Jackie, I think that morning, or certainly in the run-up, somebody could shoot me from a window with a rifle, but what can you do?
0: There's no point worrying about it. Well, you could not ride through Dallas in an open-top car, I suppose.
1: that is is certainly true. But I think his attitude was, you know, if it's going to come, it's going to come one way or another. You know, there are are other ways to kill people. Um, You know, they could put a bomb under the car, you know, which actually would have been much more efficient if you were some of the people who supposedly had done it. But no, I mean, the security approach was essentially uh, the drunk looking under a lamppost for his keys because that's where the light is. You know, the 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 dinner, the grand dinner at the trademark that they were on their way to, you know, they they were going to swap the food around so no one knew whose food Kennedy's would be. You know, there was massive security there. But you know, they drove past thousands and thousands of windows. You know, there was, there was no way that they could secure it. So, you know, as soon as you're going to put him on public view and the whole point of it, the whole point of the trip was to take that sort of risk. I mean, not at the extreme level that we now think of it, but you know, I am your president. I'm not frightened of you. Here I am. You know, it, it was inherent to the trip.
0: Was there an immediate assumption that it was a right winger who had pulled the trigger?
1: Yes. I mean, that very morning, there had been an advert placed in the Dallas Morning News approved by the very right wing head of Dallas Morning News, uh, Dealey, the son of Dealey of Dealey Plaza, which was basically a set of questions inspired by the John Birch Society, you know, tantamount to calling him a traitor. And there was also flyers being put under people's windshields along the motorcade route with Kennedy's face front on, you know, profile like a criminal saying, wanted for treason.
0: So it wasn't a huge leap of the imagination. However, it wasn't a right winger who pulled the trigger. Uh, It was Lee Harvey Oswald. Tell us about Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, I mean, the first
1: thing to say about that is the fact that it was a, a left-wing man in a right-wing town did seem to people, not, the, you know, some of the early conspiracy theorists, but not only them, to, to just be too much like a twist in a movie. And that, that, you know, actually, why wouldn't there be a left-wing person in a right-wing town?
0: Who just happened to have a job in a store with a window overlooking where the president happened to be driving by. He did just
1: happen to have that, that job. He'd got the job long before the most Kate route was announced that just seems too convenient to be true but why why might it not be you know america was not exactly empty of angry young men who knew how to fire a gun he wanted to break his way into history one way or another and he did you know he also wanted to strike a blow i think however confusedly he went about it for the castro regime and in a way he did the castro regime you know uh american attacks on it you know slackened off afterwards but you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was um was a very troubled young man his father had died I think just before he was born he his mother didn't really enjoy being a mum he's a classic classic example of which there are many others in less extreme form of that sort of mid-century quote-unquote juvenile delinquent who is having an absolutely miserable time there are multiple you know stepfathers he's he gets in trouble for juvenile delinquency but he's also bright. And this thing happens when he's 15 years old, he's in the street in New York and someone hands him a flyer about The uh, execution of the Rosenbergs. Yeah, I assume it's a communist leaflet, Um, and he gets very interested. He starts reading about this stuff. You know, within two years, he's joined the Marines, and he's sitting talking. You know, in the Marines, he's sitting learning Russian. He's decided he wants to go to the Soviet Union, but also, you know, talking in these terms. He's read 1984. He's read Animal Farm. He talks about Animal Farm. You know, more like a critique of imperialism than Stalinism. And so he's got this, as I say, combustible combination of kind of a temper. You know, he's a violent guy. Uh and this sort of you know, sort of veering order didacticism. He then goes to the Soviet Union uh in nineteen fifty nine, he meets uh, a woman and uh they get married and he comes back in nineteen sixty two,
0: disillusioned with the Soviet Union. And enthusiastic about the Cuban Revolution which that takes was, place.
1: Uh, again, we slightly forget this. That was quite a mainstream view. Batista, the uh, sort of corrupt tyrant that Castro had bravely ousted, was, you know, he may have been supported by America, but he was manifestly a bad guy. And there was there was fairly mainstream excitement about this. However, as Castro moves towards a sort of Soviet orientation, that obviously very rapidly and sharply changes, but it doesn't change for Oswald. He stays seeing that as the great hope. And so, you know, he, he comes back to America. He tries to kill General Walker. Uh, he starts proselytising as best he can for the Fair Play for Cuba committee, Uh, he reads Trotskyist and Stalinist newspapers, he poses with them with a gun and sends it to the the militant, the Trotskyist paper saying you know I'm ready for anything. Um,
0: Was he then or had he ever been a member of the Communist Party? He had tried to become a member of the Socialist Workers Party
1: but they said well I'm terribly sorry but we don't take individuals without a local group and there are none in Texas, we have no branch of the SWP (laughs) in the entirety of the Great State (laughs) of Texas so sorry you can't and Then he decides he's going to try and get to Cuba. He goes in late September 1963 to Mexico City and tries desperately to get a visa. And there's this awful image of him sitting, weeping his heart out in the Soviet embassy, faced with this sort of crunching bureaucracy, trying to get a visa so he can go to Cuba in transit. And they just turn him down and he comes back. And at the same time, his marriage is collapsing, not least because he's violent and, by the sounds of it, a rapist. And so he he can't hold down a job. He has nothing. And if you go to the little house that he lived in, that I did a few weeks ago, in West Neely Street, you know, you see something of the sort of... the sort of... the sorry smallness of this guy's life. I mean, it's basically a sort of three-room, you know, upstairs of a tiny house. You know, the backyard photograph of him with the gun is sort of this tiny, scrappy little place, you know. And then this enormous world figure drives past your window. You can see why it might be, not to justify it for one second, provocative.
0: So the the later th- conspiracy theorists, if that's what we label them, who assume, argue, make the case that Oswald was a Cuban agent or a Soviet agent or was acting as part of some larger system, they were imposing on him a kind of grandiosity, which presumably he would have loved if he'd lived to see it. I mean, you, you, you see him as a far more pathetic figure than that, who would rather like to have been a a Cuban or a a Soviet agent would have liked to have been part of some bigger entity but never got the brakes. There's a a great line
1: of Norman Mailer's about this which says something like Oswald was most certainly a secret agent but whether he represented anything broader than the power centers in his own mind we don't know.
0: (laughs) Steve the news of the shooting and then the confirmation that Kennedy was dead Spread across the country within hours, of course, in 1963, in a way that obviously hadn't been the case when Garfield was shot, hadn't been the case when Lincoln was shot. What difference did that, the speed of that news transmission, make to the way that the country reacted?
2: Enormous uh, difference. And it's all about television. I mean, television came of age that weekend of November 22nd, 23rd, and 24th, and 25th, wall-to-wall coverage of, of Kennedy, usually images of him and his beautiful family juxtaposed with uh, with uh, conversations about the assassination. Within, within 30 minutes of the shots being fired, some 60% of the American public knew about the assassination. By 6 p.m. that evening, 99.8 of Americans knew about the assassination. And as a 19th century historian, you understand how unique that is. I mean, it would take, it probably took weeks for people to know that Lincoln had been assassinated. But people learned about, and this is the first president to be killed instantly. Uh, does not linger at all. There's a sudden and immediate transfer of power. So, uh, so and television brought that into everyone's living room. So we felt this sense of em- this emotional attachment, not to the JFK, but to his mourning widow and his beautiful children. So I think it was television that that took this event that was powerful in and of itself and turned it into something. Uh, that uh, that was ingrained in the in the hearts and the minds of, of every American over the age of five. Sir, how did the news of President Kennedy's death affect you? As a man of God, I would say that I felt the impact of the sniper's bullet. I would also say that I felt the pain that the president had in his dying moments. Why did it happen? Who would have done such a thing? Is in question? ma'am?
0: I can't sit that <laughs>
2: In the basement of the courthouse, policemen, reporters, and cameramen were waiting for Oswald to come down an elevator there to the right to be transferred to another jail. A man named Ruby was waiting too. The scene began with the familiar routine of news coverage of public events. The officers come down. There goes Ruby toward Oswald. He's firing. Oswald slumps to the floor, and as he does, The police officers beside him leap upon Ruby, throw him to the ground. Then they take him and take him away from this basement and take him upstairs to a cell to be questioned. Meanwhile, if you look toward the left of the picture, underneath the headlight,
0: you will see the body of Oswald still lying there. Two days after Kennedy was shot, Lee Harvey Oswald was shot. So we never got to hear his version of events. Maybe that matters too. But how did his own uh, killing uh, feed into this story that we're telling of the Kennedy assassination as the mother of all conspiracy theories?
2: This adds another dimension to the the conspiracy theories. And it just, none of it seems to make sense. You're, you're just, you're watching this, right? Your president has been shot. You're... You know, in shock about about that experience, and then, you know, I think it's live television that people see. Jack Ruby, who you know, a local uh, nightclub owner, manages to go into what should be a secure area and take out a gun and stick it right in the stomach of Lee Harvey Oswald. And, and again, it's like, how can that possibly happen? How did he get access to that area? Why was he there? You know, I got interested in the assassination when I was in college. I originally had no interest in it at all. And I was coming home from the library one night and there was a sign up about, you know, the Kennedy assassination. And there were a bunch of college kids, uh, recent graduates who were putting on all the conspiracy theories, you know, the umbrella man and and, um, shots from, from the grassy knoll and how the military, and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe they got away with this. And I bought all these things and I read all the conspiracy books. And then when I became a historian, as I learned how to use evidence. I All of these theories just fell apart. And even then, though, I still have this idea that this is how could this possibly have happened the way it did?
0: That great consequential events must surely have great causes. Absolutely. It does something profoundly, it's profoundly disturbing to us on some level that some series of random chances or some one lone weirdo or even a lone weirdo with a few mates can have such massive effect on the course of history. We just don't want to believe that as, as human beings, do we?
2: Absolutely. And that's at the core of the conspiracy theories. It is that Kennedy had to have died for a cause. that a loser like Lee Harvey Oswald could not possibly kill a man as great as John F. Kennedy. So there had to be some meaning. You know, when Jackie Kennedy started this right after the assassination, which created the myth of Camelot, she was looking for meaning in her husband's death. She was disappointed when she found out that it was a Marxist who had shot her husband and not some right-wing loon. Um, and all these conspiracy theories, you look at Oliver Stone, you know, it's, it's Kennedy, they, the military, the military industrial complex assassinated Kennedy because he wasn't strong enough in Vietnam, that Kennedy was going to pull out of Vietnam and they cut him down because he was going to seek peace in the world and heal the, heal the differences between the races.
0: It requires belief in a huge amount of foresight on the part of those deep state actors in 1963, it, it, doesn't well, it, to to, the, the, right. to have anticipated back then the course of American intervention in in Vietnam.
2: Well, it's it's you know what's fascinating to me about this is that people are inherently in America, you know, inherently skeptical of government, but somehow they believe that this you know this military industrial complex was able to pull off the murder of the sentry and without ever getting caught pulling it off perfectly. It just doesn't make
0: any sense. One of the consequences of Oswald being shot was that therefore there was not a trial. And so people were deprived of what may otherwise have been the process of looking at the evidence and trying to understand what may have lain behind this extraordinarily momentous, shocking event. So quite quickly afterwards, the new president, Lyndon Johnson, sets up a commission headed by Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren. What was the remit of that commission, Phil, and why did it report so quickly and what did it say? Well, I think it reported so quickly partly because,
1: you know, there was a desire for what we would perhaps now call closure. didn't achieve it, but that was the aim. I think Johnson also wanted it done before the 1964 presidential election. But the the effective aim of it was to close down awkward additional aspects to the story, of which there are basically three. Um, One is the fact that the FBI you know hadn't done a great job they did know about oswald they hadn't noticed that he had this gun and that he worked on the route hoover was interested in keeping it that closed down they did not want to get into uh kennedy's sort of personal life you know the autopsy is rushed because of his addisons etc and crucially 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 they did not want to get into the fact that you know it looked like he could have had some sort of involvement with the Cubans and that that might have been some sort of retaliation for America's attempts to uh, subvert the Castro regime. So the the remit, de facto, that Johnson gives to Warren is conclude that it was one guy and don't talk too much about Cuba. Now, if you look at the Warren report, if you look at the chapter on Lee Harvey Oswald, it does talk about him reading The Militant, the newspaper of the SWP. It does talk about what that said about um about you know kennedy so it's not not there but if you absent from that the campaigns to subvert castro then that just looks like sort of weird hard left chatter as against you know a, a kind of exchange of hostilities so that was the basic game, and you know in terms of the kind of in terms of the tactic it succeeded in terms of the strategy obviously it was disastrously unsuccessful
0: you're, you're- You're setting this up as something that served uh, Lyndon Johnson's political interests, sorting it out before the 1964 election, closing down these awkward questions. But uh, Earl Warren was a respected Supreme Court justice, which is a phrase that you could use in 1963. It'd be perhaps harder to use in 2023. Uh, They called for evidence. There were lawyers involved. This was a, a, a careful process involving sifting of evidence as if it had been a courtroom yes but you know this is not simply about johnson's
1: sort of narrow kind of self-interest you know this is also about not risking a nuclear war a year after the cuban missile crisis you know if it had become the focus of attention that a the americans have been trying to subvert the castro regime and b oswald had gone to those embassies in mexico city then the pressure that would have landed on Johnson to retaliate in some way from the Joint Chiefs of Staff, from quite a lot of people in the Senate, from the right more generally, probably from quite a lot of Cold War liberals, would have been very, very dangerous. And so, you know, he, I think, says this to Warren effectively, and so that's one reason. But that is not to say that the whole thing is a total sham. It's just they don't go into that particular bit. There's plenty that they can investigate. I mean, there are also interesting differences between the Warren Commission as in the commissioners, some of whom don't actually turn up very often, and the staff of the Warren Commission, who many of whom are you know pro Kennedy liberals, and are rather disappointed not to find that there was some sort of you know meaning you know uh, giving plot, um, but also do look more into the question of you know uh, Oswald's relationship with you know or, or felt relationship with the Castro regime and so on, and felt that that would have given a more satisfying explanation of his motives. And those, the one particular bit one of them wrote, which was. Exclude it. So it's a much more bitty process than Warren simply agreeing to pull a pull a fast one. But it is a, a, a series of nuances which end up you know with what we have.
2: The Warren Commission paints Oswald as a sociopath, as someone who simply was a loner and saw assassinating Kennedy as a way of uh, uh, getting fame and attention. But I think what we've learned later is that Oswald was actually something of an ideologue. That that there may have been a political agenda in his decision to shoot uh, JFK. And that's something that we'll never really know. We don't know what happened to him when he was in Mexico, just uh, weeks before the assassination. To my mind, that's the great mystery. And the thing that is still uncertain in my mind about the Warren Commission is the portrait they paint of Leo Harvey Oswald. And I think that's where the Warren Commission may have
0: failed. The report dismissed any notion that what had happened was part of any conspiracy domestic or foreign to assassinate President Kennedy. So that's a very, that's the clear, famous line that the Warren Commission take. Johnson himself, President Johnson himself, didn't really believe that, did he? Didn't he always think that the Cubans were involved somehow?
1: Yeah, he thought that Kennedy had tried to get Castro and Castro got him first, but that you could not possibly say that publicly because it would possibly lead to a nuclear war.
2: You know, and I still, I have to say that while I embrace. You know, the, the war, I believe in the Warren Commission. I think there's holes. Uh, I was friends with the president's son. John Kennedy Jr. was one of my closest friends. And I, we rarely talked about the assassination. But one time he said to me something. He said, you know, he said, Bobby knew everything. And he said it in such a way to think that.
0: Bobby Kennedy, the president's younger brother, who was the attorney general and had been spending a lot of time prosecuting the mafia. What, what, what was Bobby Kennedy's private view of why his brother had been shot.
2: Well, he blamed himself. He blamed himself because he was going after the, the mafia. He was convinced until his own death that um, that the mafia was somehow involved. Uh, that there was a mafia Cuban connection. And you know, the, the the problem with Bobby Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, as Attorney General, is that when the Warren Commission asked him if he had any information that was relevant to the assassination, he said no. He never told them about Operation Mongoose, which was the Kennedy effort to assassinate Castro.
0: What LBJ and Bobby Kennedy knew was the scale of the secret operations that the CIA had been mounting since the Cuban Revolution to assassinate Fidel Castro.
2: That's right.
0: So again, you think, well, that's not really that surprising then that they make a connection there. They know that this is going on. Uh, there is a, a a Marxist who has spent time in the Soviet Union, who has been fingered as the assassin. It's not much of a leap, is it, to imagine that there must have been some Cuban involvement?
2: No, there's, there's it's not much of a leap.
0: But nobody's come up with any hard evidence that makes that case beyond the plausible supposition that Bobby Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson had.
2: That's right. There's been no, even given all the material that has come out uh, since the Records Act, um, there has been no evidence that uh, the mob or Castro was involved in the assassination. You know, there is a lot of questions about what happened in Mexico City. When Oswald went to Mexico City about six or seven weeks before the assassination and was shuttling back and forth between the Soviet and Cuban uh, embassies, that he, at one point, he, you know, threatened to kill the the president. We don't know whether Cuban intelligence encouraged him, made him believe that he would be rewarded if he shot JFK. But, you know, we will never know. And part of the reason why we will never know is the Warren Commission never fully explored that angle.
0: So we're talking about people at the top of the American government, we're talking about understandable anxieties about the potential consequences of the Kennedy assassination being linked to Cuba or the Soviet Union in this very heightened, stressful circumstances of the Cold War. What did the American people as a whole, how did they react to the Warren commission report to the idea that there was just a lone gunman acting on his own and that one man can have been responsible for this shocking and traumatic and history changing event?
2: Before, the Warren Commission came out. It came out 10 months after the assassination. Before that, only 29% of the public believed that Oswald acted alone. When the Warren Commission was published, that figure went up, up to 87% believed that Oswald did act alone. But beginning in 65, I think, when uh, Mark Lane publishes Rush to Judgment, you have a whole series of uh, People who are criticizing the Warren Commission, saying it's improbable. And in the midst of that, there are these images in Life magazine of, uh, of the Zabruder film. And then later, people get to
0: see the Zabruder film itself. The Zabruder film, an amateur movie. So there were, there were images, there were actual images of the killing, of the immediate aftermath of the killing. That must have had a huge impact on you. I think people.
2: you're right. So the first images, I think Life publishes the first images in 1966, uh, although they, they don't publish the frames where Kennedy's head explodes. It's not until the 19, early 70s, I think 1975, that the Zapruder film is shown on national television. You know, it fed into these conspiracy theories because it added another dimension to the improbability of what the Warren Commission said because if you look at it if you're just an amateur and you're looking at it what you see is Kennedy's head jolt back which seems to reinforce the idea that there was a shot from the front from the grassy knoll
1: there were immediate even before the Warren Commission there were there were immediate quite widespread worries that this was not as simple as it looked the the press reaction to the Warren Commission initially is relatively uh, accepting uh, my impression from looking at you know glimpsed mentions of polls is that there was still a, there was a fair amount of public skepticism even from pretty early on but where it really starts to gain traction is when as you move further and further down into the depths of the late 1960s as as the war begins to become the famous sort of quagmire people begin by the end of the 60s to look back and say well maybe Kennedy was trying to stop that and maybe he was killed in order to keep it going. And that's when you really start to get the idea of, of, the, sort of the war machine. And this is what's famously dramatised in Oliver Stone's JFK, that the, 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 the war machine did it. Now, that takes different iterations. At the beginning, it's a much more general thing about how he was going to end the Cold War, and it's, it's perhaps more focused on rapprochement with Cuba, because Vietnam is not enormously important. And he has also just sort of basically allowed the uh, the leader of of uh, Vietnam, Jam, to be... Um, Assassinated three weeks before he's assassinated. In fact, a quick sidebar: there are some theories. Johnson at one point thought that it may have been the Vietnamese in revenge for the uh, the killing of Jam, which is not one that we remember. But it becomes later, as I say, it becomes a sort of thesis about the war machine. And what's really striking about that, I think, is it plays into something which has been in American politics for much longer, which is this idea of the merchants of death—that
0: there are people who
1: profit. From war. And, and not only yeah. that they profit, which obviously they do, but that they organize it and orchestrate it in order to make those profits.
0: And that was very deeply embedded in the United States after the First World War. And and even the good war, the experience of the United States in the Second World War didn't entirely quash it. And of course, it was President Eisenhower, so going back before the Kennedy assassination, who warned of the military industrial complex. So even Eisenhower, a general and a man who sitting in the Oval Office, you might think was in a position to know, had publicly warned that something profound had shifted In American government and that there were forces at work that had nothing to do with the Supreme Court or Congress or the presidency that nobody elected that nobody could see whose names weren't known who weren't talked about in the papers who didn't appear on TV, but who wielded enormous power even over the man in the Oval Office. That was in 1960. So that's an important background, isn't it to set up the idea that by the late 60s, in the context of this quagmire, this horrible war in Vietnam, perhaps these things were all connected and there was something at work there that nobody could see.
1: I mean, I think the way you described the military-industrial complex there is a very accurate description of how it begins with that Eisenhower speech, which is not very conspiratorial at all, and ramifies and expands over the course of particularly the latter half of the 60s and becomes this much more totalized. Idea. It 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 attaches itself. This phrase to a pre-existing sense that there is this sort of smoky back room in which the secret cabal sits. You know, which you can see dramatised in as a movie in nineteen thirty-four called The President Vanishes, where you know you have an oilman and a lawyer and so on who are literally sort of plotting this exact stuff off the back, as you say, of, of anxieties from the First World War and heading towards the Second World War. Now, the queasy thing about this, of course, is that it appeals to people on the left. It's quite a sort of left-wing view on the face of it, but it also appeals to a very right-wing perspective, you know, based around essentially anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, and that's where this starts to attach itself later. But at, at the point you're talking about, yeah, you do get a sense... As you go through the 60s, that this phrase that, oh my goodness, it was Eisenhower who said it. I still talk to people about this now, but the, the shock and surprise that it was he who said it. You know, the great general from the Second World War. I mean, actually, he has a sense of what the budgets were like and the pressures were like. And he was very parsimonious and that was driving it partly. But the key thing, I think, and the thing that your kind of description of it sort of maps is it doesn't start off as something totalized and mysterious and outside of the public domain. I mean, that speech is influenced by C. Wright Mills' book, The Power Elite, published in 1956, which is about fairly open things. You know, friend of Hofstadter's working with Hofstadter party to make sure he wasn't falling into conspiracy theory. That, you know, this is basically about congressmen saying, well, I've got this this defence plant in my district, so I want more money to go there. And then people who work in the army going into politics or going into the pentagon and this sort of nexus but it's all happening in front of you it's when that shifts and the kennedy assassination is part of this it's when that shifts into the nefarious invisible background that it starts to marry up with much more conspiracy things so there's a there's a far-right broadcaster called dan smoot who publishes funded i think by hl hunt who who publishes a book called the invisible government and it sort of becomes married up with that
0: It seems to me you've both been describing two broad families of conspiracy theories, one involving America's external enemies in a Cold War context, the Cubans or the Soviets being somehow sitting behind this in some way, sitting behind Oswald as the lone, sitting behind Oswald, who's therefore not the lone gunman. The other family of conspiracy theories is that it's America itself, which has killed Kennedy. It's something to do with the government, the FBI, the CIA, some sinister forces within American society. Broadly speaking, are we talking about, if we're thinking about the the decades after 1963, are we talking about a shift from the first to the second, from the external conspiracy theories to the idea that it's an internal conspiracy theory within America?
2: Absolutely. You know, it originally, and you say at the height of the Cold War, the assumption was that it was Castro. It was the Soviet Union that was behind it. You know, when the Warren Commission was uh, doing its investigation, Gerald Ford, who was then a congressman from Michigan, actually held out. He was the last holdout on the one bullet theory because he was convinced the Soviets were behind it. And he couldn't prove it. What you see happening is, you know, beginning in the 70s, as following Vietnam and Watergate, is the public is losing trust in government itself. That's where the second family emerges. That's where people, they turn away from the Cold War and they look internally and they believe that Kennedy was assassinated by this military industrial complex. So it's kind of ironic, right? The same people who lose faith in government because they believe it can't do anything right also believe that it pulled off the, this, this brilliant, flawless assassination of a sitting president. You know, it reflects, it tells us more about ourselves, and about the way we view government that it does necess- does that it does reflect any new facts about the assassination
0: today we're living in a period where american politics is suffused with conspiracy theories there are the all the covid related conspiracy theories and of course rfk junior uh, bobby kennedy's son is now potentially running as a spoiler candidate, although that's presumably not the term he would use, running for president and picking up some of the Kennedy glamour and running on what his critics regard as conspiracy theories. So my question is, what do you see, Phil, as being the relationship between those conspiracy theories which we see today and which are often described in the, quote, mainstream media in pejorative terms, in other words, the people who believe in these conspiracy theories are in the implication is they're marginal oddballs, albeit with huge amounts of potential power because there's an awful lot of them, but fundamentally there's something wrong with them. What's the relationship between that kind of conspiracy thinking today and the conspiracy theories which we've been talking about in this episode, which were in one form or another believed by, if you look at the polls, by a large majority of Americans who've consistently rejected the idea as put forward by the Warren Commission report, that the explanation for the killing of Kennedy was just one guy with a gun?
1: Well, I think there's more difference in American politics between now and 1963 than there is in the conspiracy narratives themselves. I mean, you know, many people have argued that the QAnon story... Uh, the QAnon sort of conspiracy narrative you know has pretty strong connections to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion which goes back you know a lot further and is just as you know, um, you know bizarre and nonsensical the basic narratives are, are pretty standard I mean you know the, the basic conspiracy movie has the evil cabal, the sheeple and the plucky maverick investigators who want to expose the truth and you pretty much usually can fit them into, into that pattern. One way it's different I suppose, is that, you know, there was great, as we've been discussing, there was great polarisation and hostility and extremity in American politics in the early 1960s. It just didn't entirely happen within the main parties. But now you have, you know, candidates for the Republican Party who are unashamed supporters of QAnon, you know, Trump himself obviously in particular in his speech at Waco he was talking in ways that are directly reminiscent of the sort of things that even in the 1990s you would have heard from a militia more than you would have done from a, a political candidate so I suppose that's part of the shift but also you know I think the danger obviously always is we think of everything either sort of descending towards our current dear or ascending towards our current apex right I think this is an ongoing process why do people believe in conspiracy theories one major reason famously is, you know, when they feel like they are losing, when they feel humiliated, when they cannot explain the jarring sort of unfairness of the world. Actually, you know, one of the conspiracy theorists in the heart of this story, one might say, was Lee Harvey Oswald himself. And that sort of becomes where where some of it comes from, you know, constantly kind of using false names and, you know, behaving like this sort of secret agent Um, and having this great sense of his own grandeur when he knows really he's a very insignificant figure. And so, you know if you look at it over the course of those 60 years, I would say that one of the main sort of developments is how it moves backwards and forwards between the left and the right. So, you know, when you get to 1991, Oliver Stone's movie comes out, if you look through the newspaper Spotlight, published by the Liberty Lobby, which is a, you know, pretty right-wing organisation, they love JFK. You know, Mark Lane, one of the... Uh, what One person described as the patient zero of JFK conspiracism, you know, who is a Democrat state congressman and campaigner for Kennedy in the early 1960s, you know, a civil libertarian, he's their lawyer by the early 1990s, you know, and they are promoting his book about his latest Kennedy assassination conspiracy. And that, I think, is because one of the things that happens by, especially by the time you get to Bush, you know, who is an ex-head of the CIA, an oilman, you know, very Council on Foreign Relations, trilateral commission kind of guy, and then, God forbid, you get Bill Clinton, plus you've lost your whole Cold War anti-communist frame, you know, the right feel much, much more embattled. And so, lo and behold, the conspiracy theory start to appeal much more on the right. And often basically quite similar stories uh, and certainly a focus on the Kennedy assassination. And, you know, to some extent that has continued right through to today. But of course, you know, the left have felt embattled as well. And, and the, the, I would actually say that in terms of conspiracy theory, the really striking new developments in the last few years has been the centre itself the liberal political centre itself becoming more conspiracist, both in this country over Brexit and in America over Trump. You know, if you lose, you're more prone to this stuff, even if you are, you know, a liberal metropolitan centrist.
0: That sense of humiliation that you referred to there, that seems to me to be so important, Phil, because in some big sense, the killing of a president is was a, felt as a not only as a loss... But as a humiliation, as an extraordinary violation, it was an extraordinary violation of the American democratic process of what America was supposed to be. Somebody, Lee Harvey Oswald, at least, had stolen something from every American. That was something that's part of how people reacted in 1963.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, Kennedy gave this famous address at Yale University in 1962, where he talked about the dangers of myths. And it's ironic that he's become a myth. Um, and we—he died. His the timing of his death. He he left the scene before our time of troubles, before Vietnam, before racial unrest, uh, student protests. And there's this sense that you know that these were the good days. That that that. Kennedy, Kennedy's death marked a critical turning point in our history, that he was this great leader, universally admired, and that he died for a reason. We can't believe that that America unraveled in the 1960s because of flawed assumptions. It didn't unravel because our whole view of uh, the Cold War was, was limited and could, didn't deal with things like Vietnam. It didn't we didn't, it didn't unravel because race was still a profound issue in America. We want to believe that it was all Lyndon Johnson's fault. Lyndon Johnson screwed it all up, and if only Kennedy had lived. So we also Ken, we, we forgive ourselves. We use Kennedy as a way of forgiving ourselves for these deep and profound problems that American society had then now.
0: Steve and Phil, thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you.
2: Adam, this was wonderful. Uh, I haven't had such good questions in a long time about the assassination. So you got me thinking.
0: I was talking to the historian Steve Gillen and Phil Tinline. And you can hear Phil talking about the Kennedy assassination conspiracy theories at the RAI on the anniversary itself, the 22nd of November at 5pm. Go to our website, rai.ox.ac.uk for more details. Like 9-11 or Pearl Harbour, two other shocking violations of American sense of security, the killing of Kennedy felt to those who lived through it like a huge rupture. Nothing was ever the same again. As in our own lives, one of the hardest things for us to accept as part of a national community is the violent upending of how we think things ought to be. It is the most natural thing in the world to try to match great events to great causes. Yet sometimes, very rarely but sometimes, small chances and small men have an outsized impact. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope from the RAI in Oxford. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've just discovered us, there are about 50 more episodes for you to download. The podcast is produced by Emily Williams and I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye.